Welcome, everyone, to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to our Ride the Elephant Today podcast. And I'm excited about this topic we're going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about it with my son, Brian McKinley. He's on the other line. Say hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Doc. He's he's coming through just fine. Hey, you know, Brian, we've been talking a little bit in our last podcast. and A question came up from one of our listeners. And, you know, we talked about fear-based beliefs and the effect that fear-based beliefs have on how we respond to the situations that come up in our life. And the question the listener asked was, uh, what about anxiety? Does anxiety emanate from a fear-based belief? What's your thought about that? What's your amphora for anxiety? Well, what would be your amphora for anxiety? Distinct from regular fear? Yeah, well, I think it's certainly it's fear. It's being stressed out. It's being overworked. It's having too much stuff going on. It's worrying about the past. It's worrying about the present, worrying about the future. The question that comes up, is this an emotional disorder that requires therapy and medication? Or does anxiety require accommodations at school and work? Or does anxiety require patience and understanding? It seems to me that we have used a single word to describe a feeling and an emotion or in a condition we call anxiety. What triggers me in this conversation is when I hear someone say, I feel anxious, or I have anxiety, or I have anxiety disorder. Many of us think of these three statements as the same thing. And I clearly see them as three different things. When I say that I'm anxious, do I mean I have some anxious feelings because of my own doing or because of my own not doing? Like when I'm putting off doing my homework or doing projects around the house or when I'm at work and all the work piles up and there's enough time in the day to get it done. And then I start getting anxious about it. Is that what I'm talking about when I use the word anxiety? Is there a point where it becomes overwhelming? Or do I mean, is it a medical disorder that requires medication and therapy? So it's very interesting to me because I think we conflate the word anxiety disorder with those anxious feelings that we typically have just throughout our life. Now, I don't really want to talk a lot today about the medical condition of anxiety disorder, but I do want to talk about anxiety. And I think it's important we clarify that because the two are not the same. And sometimes people think of them as the same and they're not. So what is your amphora for the word anxiety, Brian? So when I hear the word anxiety, I kind of think of someone who's being treated medically for a condition of persistent worry. And you use the word worry, which is a good word, that I feel like they all kind of fall under the fear umbrella. You use the word stress. You use the word worry. You use the word discomfort. I don't know if I heard depression in there, but I feel like these are all related words. And yet anxiety, like my connotation for anxiety is that it's a little, it's more a medical term 
It's a clinical term, and it's kind of a degree below depression. So depression would be a kind of a more extreme medical condition that people, I think, are treated for by psychologists or neurologists or whomever are the experts in that field. But they don't really use the word. You hear people say that stress is very unhealthy, and lots of people have cardiovascular problems. You wonder how much that is related to stress. And these all are similar, but they're kind of viewed differently in our society. And it seems like all of these things are very real. So I'm curious what you mean when you're talking about how there's the medical anxiety and then there's some other kind of anxiety that's like maybe the way that we use it in our vernacular. You're saying that that's different from a medical condition of persistent worry that would be treated by a psychologist? Yeah. I think one of the reasons I have come to this understanding and why I talk about it, why I think it's important is back when I was young and your age, we really didn't have a term anxiety disorder. It was not as something that was ever discussed as a medical condition. And from a historical perspective, when I did some research on this, because I wanted to say, well, okay, that might just be my feelings. But when I did some research on it, I went to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America website. And on their website, in their historical perspective of this condition, anxiety disorder, the term had not even been used prior to 1978. Conditions and anxious behavior before that were addressed as phobias. Phobia is Latin for fear. And in fact, the organization, the Anxiety Depression Association of America, was called the Phobia Society of America before it changed its name. So it's interesting that anxiety is considered today, when you throw that word out, there's a medical connotation to it. There's a therapeutic connotation to it. And I think we basically have changed how we've viewed that historically. So, for example, let me just give you a quote from the article off that website that I think puts it in perspective. In April of 1869, a young physician, George Baird, writing in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, identified symptoms that mimic the symptoms that would today be identified as anxiety disorder. He referred to it as anxious suffering. By his own account, anxious suffering was prompted largely by his uncertainty about what career to pursue. However, there's also evidence that he anguished over his lack of religious commitment. So in that article, they're talking about 100 years ago or 150 years ago, how this physician was identifying this phobia, this feeling that existed, what he called anxious suffering. And it was prompted by him not knowing what he's going to do with his life, uncertainty about the future, or he was anguishing over a religious commitment at the time. I find that very interesting. That has transformed. You know, when some people ask me, I oftentimes say that anxiety disorder is not a choice. It's a medical condition. Anxiety is a choice. It's a feeling of anxiety. It often, in many cases, is a choice of our own doing. And this is why 
this comes to me this way. I know this will upset a lot of people, especially people who have anxiety disorder. They might not want to look at it this way. Just stay with us here for a minute. I want to try to dissect this word anxiousness and anxiety disorder because I see them as two distinctly different things. I know people who have never been diagnosed as anxiety disorder. I don't have anxiety disorder and I get anxious. And I get anxious because of my own doing or what I've not done. And I don't have anxiety disorder. So that's the two I want to delineate between. When I was talking about this at a conference, a pastor made me aware that the Bible makes 365 references to statements analogous to, do not be afraid, fear not, do not worry, do not be anxious. So if the Bible makes 365 references, not worry, don't be anxious, why would God command us to not be anxious if we didn't have a choice in the matter? So I always said, you know, obviously we have a choice in the matter. So what can we do to mitigate those anxious feelings that we have that are not anxiety disorder, but are the anxious feelings of just going through day-to-day -day life? How does a person stop being anxious? So that's how I would delineate the two as listeners like you, Brian, are going to this single word anxiety and applying a medical amphora to it. I don't apply a medical amphora to the word anxiety or anxiousness. I put a medical terminology to anxiety disorder, the two words that is clearly distinguished from being anxious. How does that feel? as I expressed it that way. That's interesting. I definitely understand the distinction that you're making there between the two. It seems like there could be just a different word. Yes, there does. Let's come up with a word, because to me, it's crazy that one word gets used in both contexts. Right. It's like there's anxiety type one and anxiety type two. Yeah. So if anxiety... Type one is just like, oh, driving in the rain and there's a lot of semi trucks and the freeway is under construction. So I'm stressed and I'm anxious because visibility is low because it's raining and there's trucks and I feel anxious. If that's yes. anxiety type one, but it's not a medical condition, run of the mill, Correct. stressful situation anxiety, what would be a different word that you would use for the medical anxiety? Well, that's a good question. I've thought about that a lot. You know, I've come up with two definitions for the word sensitivity, and I think we can create a word if we just be more creative. Maybe our listeners can create one too. You know, back when I was talking to one of my classes, one of the students said, we're just sensitive. Our generation is, we're like snowflakes. We're just oversensitive. And I asked him, I said, what's your end for being sensitive? What is sensitivity? And the students would talk about well, we just get our feelings hurt easily. We get disappointed easily. If we don't get praise, we feel we let people down. We get our feelings hurt easily. Someone might bully us and we don't like it. We uh, react to that bullying in a very sensitive way. And so that was their definition of sensitivity. And I found that very interesting because when I thought of the word sensitivity, I always thought of a character quality that I was caring about other people. I would put myself in other people's shoes, and that would make me sensitive. As a dentist, I'm very sensitive to the feelings people have 
when I'm working on them. I have that sensitivity. So that's a totally different definition. When I looked up the word in the dictionary, Webster likes to define sensitivity, that character quality of caring for how other people feel, putting yourself in other people's shoes. They did not have a definition in the dictionary that was even close to the definition that the students came up with, which was this feeling of being sensitized by somebody's behavior. So I challenged the class to come up with a different word. Like you just said, Brian, let's come up with a different word. I challenged the class. And you know what we came up with? We came up with sensophobia. <laughs> we said, okay, from now on, when we talk about the sensitivity of getting your feelings hurt easily, we're going to call that sensophobia. And when we talk about caring for other people and being concerned how other people feel, we're going to call that sensitivity. So that's how we responded and resolved it. We just created two words, and then we were able to carry our conversation after that and understand what we each meant. Right now, we don't have that luxury with this word, anxiety at this point. The only thing that I have is when you put the word disorder at the end of the word anxiety, then it's clearly, to me, a medical condition that needs to be addressed. So at this point, for the sake of our conversation, we can talk about anxiety as those feelings we have inside when things aren't, like you say, being on a highway in bad weather, driving between two trucks, it can create a lot of anxiety. But anxiety disorder, that's another level that requires therapy and maybe even medication. So I know it's a fine line. However, if we don't learn to understand the difference between the two, and don't see them as different, we'll have a very difficult time mitigating anxiety. Because I believe we can mitigate anxiety in our life. I really do. I think we can control it. We can do better with it. We don't have to respond. We have a choice. We have a choice in how we respond to the situations that occur in our life. And if we respond with anxiety, that's our choice. However, I also understand that anxiety disorder that is not a choice, and that requires therapy and medication and counselors or whatever else is the standard of care for treating anxiety disorder. There are two distinctly different responses that we have. How do you feel about that? It makes sense. The sensophobia thing is interesting. I'm curious, what are the best other alternative choices to choosing anxiety? Well, that's really what I would like to nail down a little bit. You know, I think one of the, the most common thing I hear when I ask people what the word anxiety means to them or what's there for for the word anxiety, worry by far is the biggest thing. We worry about most everything. We worry that I can't do something. We worry we might fail. We worry that we could look stupid. We worry about being rejected. We worry about not being approved of. We worried about, like I said earlier, about being bullied. We worry about being compared to others. We worry about being criticized. We worry about being gossiped about. And we worry about meeting the expectations of others. We worry about if we're attractive enough. We worry about if we're being liked or loved or respected. We worry about getting a job. We worry about staying in school. We worry about being a part of the group. We worry about getting all the stuff done that's on our list of things to do. So is worry anxiety or every time we feel worry do we have to respond with anxious feelings well according to most people yes they do 
So anxiety affects our mood. It affects our feelings. It affects our demeanor. We can be sad. We can even be depressed when we're anxious. When we feel anxious, we have low energy levels. We can either be apathetic. Many times when we feel anxious, we have a lot of negative thoughts rolling around in our mind. And our self-talk is very negative and oftentimes debilitating. I think a lot of times what we do today is we use anxiety as an excuse. When people expect us to do things and we fall short, we can throw out, I have anxiety, and we expect that people cut them a little slack. We tell people we have anxiety, we get accommodations at school and at work. Now, sometimes in those situations, you actually get diagnosed of having anxiety disorder, and those accommodations in school at work are appropriate for those situations, for sure. But why do we want to let people know that we have anxiety or anxiety disorder? Why is, what are we really trying to achieve when we say that? And I think that's where I would like to go here. The anxiety is a choice. Anxiety disorder is not a choice. What can we do to mitigate anxiety? We know what we can do to mitigate anxiety disorder. We go to the physician and we get that addressed, or a counselor, we get that addressed. But how do we mitigate the anxiety of living day-to-day -day life, driving down the freeway with two trucks on each side of us in a bad, bad weather? How do we respond to that? And I believe that we create much of our anxious feelings by putting off what we've agreed to do, by not taking personal responsibility when we blame and make excuses, I believe that we have many anxious feelings when we are presumptuous and value judge others. And when we seek the approval of others and we fail to receive it, we oftentimes get anxious in that situation. So Brian, my question for you is, have we enabled a generation to use this anxiety as an excuse or an answer for why they shouldn't be held accountable? Is that what we're doing? Is that the answer? I have anxiety, and therefore I should not be held accountable. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of people. And it's probably more accommodated in academia and less so in the workplace. It seems that kind of, it might be a little bit of an age factor too. In other words, if you're an adult, there's an expectation that you're going to have a a maturity level about how to mitigate your anxiety. And hopefully by the time you're an adult, if you've been dealing with that chronic stress, chronic feelings of despair, that you've found resources to help with that and that you can mitigate it without having to require a fluffy little bunny on your desk with a ribbon on its head for your comfort because we're at the workplace here. Not everybody can bring in a, what do they call them? Emotional support security animal. animal, emotional support animal. And I mean, we also talk about value judgment and you could easily stray into value judging people here for the choices that they make in terms of mitigating their fear and mitigating their anxiety. Some people, it's a portal to feeling at ease by way of uh, emotional support animal, then 
maybe that should be accommodated at least for a time until that person can transcend to the next level of being able to have emotional stability without the emotional support animal. Just can't take the emotional support animal everywhere, although there's some people I think who like the world to be that way. But similar with medication, if you choose medication as your portal to feeling at ease, then so be it. And if it's temporary, all the better, because I know that medication can have, you know, you can create other problems like dependency issues. There's side effects for these medications and stuff, which some people are keen to avoid. Uh, Maybe temporary use of a medication to get out of a bad situation, a good way to transcend discomfort and anxiety without having severe long-term side effects from using that medication, whether it's an antidepressant or whatever it is they use. I'm not an expert on any of this by any means. I'm an expert in experiencing. I don't so much feel anxiety on a personal note here. I don't so much feel anxiety too often as I feel drained. I feel situations will kind of drain me. I have a lot of fears and I do feel anxious from time to time, but I've never felt what I think some people have to deal with out there that would drive them to then go see a physician about it. And I'll just say straight up, if you're using anxiety to manipulate people and draw attention to yourself, then shame on you. That's black and white to me. Yeah. That's like someone faking being in a wheelchair to get attention or cut in line or something like that. That's on par with that. If you're using anxiety as an excuse and you're using it to manipulate people, there's people who have real, real issues of stress and despair, and loss, and those people need accommodation. So to take up energy with fake anxiety is a pretty shameful endeavor, in my opinion, yeah. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think think there's a lot of that abuse going on, misusing this whole issue. And it's totally subjective. Nobody can know. Nobody can get inside that person's head and say, well, actually... You are not anxious. You're something else. Yeah. You know, we have to take their word for it, that they're having well, a human think... experience and, and anxiety is their amphora for it. That's their container for what they're feeling. Well, I think there's two people you're talking about here. I think there's people who want to hang on to their anxiety because they want to use it to do what exactly what you're saying, Brian. I think that happens. And I'm not really here to address that person because... If they want to keep using that as a crutch in their life, then they will continue to use that as a crutch in their life. They are not willing to face the elephant in the room and ride it. So what I'm talking about are the people that say, you know, I'm much more anxious than I would like to be. What can I do to mitigate my anxiety? Because I don't want to continue to use it as an excuse. I don't want to continue to use it as a crutch. So those are the people that I'm wanting to address this question to and say, what can you do to mitigate fear-based anxiety in your life? Not medically-based anxiety, fear-based anxiety in your life. And I think you asked that question earlier in the podcast, Brian. And and I think one of the things we do, many of us worry about the past. We worry about the present, we worry about the future. And I think when it comes to worrying about the past, 
I think if you can get to the point where you can say, I'm not willing to lament the past anymore, I'm willing to learn from it. So I will be a better person because of it. So taking the challenges you've had in your life and turning them around and using them for good, reframing them, we've talked about that before, and use it for good. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger is a, is a common way of looking. I think there's even a song about that. What I've learned from the past helps me and helps others in my life. It helps my children. It helps people I work with. It helps my friends. It gives me a perspective that I wouldn't have otherwise. So I'm grateful for that perspective that I garnered through those tough situations that I had to experience. So if you start looking at those tough situations in your life and are grateful for the things you learn because you now have the ability to help other people, I think that's one way to mitigate anxious feelings that you might have around your past, okay? I think another thing we can do to make better decisions is that if, as long as we look at our actions, as long as my actions are rooted in good character and I do the right thing and start believing that as long as I do that, the best outcomes will happen, even when I don't see how. I just know that when I act truthfully, compassionately, resourcefully, diligently, and with discretion and love, I get the best outcome. And the best outcome for me is what I want, and it makes me less anxious when I get those great outcomes because I'm focusing on truthfulness, compassion, resourcefulness, diligence, discretion, and love. I think the other thing that we can do to mitigate some of the anxiety that we have is that we forgive those situations that were tough for us. Forgive a person that hurt us or said something to us or damaged us in some way. That that really frees me from the shackles of my own doing, if you will. And that helps me mitigate these anxious feelings that I could have. Any thoughts or stories you can reflect on or situations you reflect on, Brian, where you saw that play out in your life or in someone else's life? I... I cannot, I can't think of something off the top of my head right now. All right. Well, if something comes yeah. to you, then let me know. Sure. You know, I think another thing that we can do is we worry about the present. I mean, we worry about the future. And I think one of the things we do when we worry about the future is it's hard for us to stay in the present moment. I think when we really look at who we're hanging with, if we're hanging with people who are possibility thinkers, who see life that life is a series of opportunities instead of seeing life as a series of problems, those help you mitigate anxiety. Because as long as you see life as a series of problems, there's a lot to get anxious about because you're facing those problems. If you see life as a series of opportunities, you see that the situations that you've been facing with, the ones that are challenging you, are really an opportunity for you to grow and be better and be a stronger person. So I think those situations, as long as we look at our, the things that occur in our life as opportunities, we do much better than when we look at, at situations as problems. You actually spoke on that as a lecture topic in my class, and I thought it was an excellent presentation. Do you want anything to add to that about life being a series of opportunities? Well. One of the themes of that talk was a biblical reference. The archetypes that the author of Proverbs used. So in the in the middle of the Old Testament, you have the books that are called the wisdom literature. 
and there's some pretty heady stuff in there. The Book of Lamentations specifically is, well, it's just that, Lamentations. It's it's a book of sorrows and opining about the difficulties of life. And traditionally, it's thought that, that these books were all written by the same author, just Solomon. And he describes different character archetypes in Proverbs, which uh, are the the fool, the simple man. He talks about the wicked man a lot. He talks about the adulteress. And then he also talks about the wise king and how the wise king makes decisions that are different, that distinguish him from you know, the fool and the adulteress and all, all the rest of the people that are kind of seen as that ilk that is kind of seen as being disruptors of a healthy family or a healthy society. And the lesson with the king is that he takes responsibility and he rules his kingdom with character and with wisdom, taking wise counsel and so on. So individual people can kind of look at themselves as kings. I told the students in the class, each one of you is like royalty in your own little life. You're a king, you're a queen, and you have a kingdom. And as a high school student, your kingdom, you might be your, your car when you learn to drive and you get a car and you've got your locker. And when you go to work, you've got your, your workspace. A lot of people have an office at home and that's their little kingdom. My aunt loves to cook. Well, lots of McKinley's like to cook, but your sister in particular has a, a special affinity for cooking. That's her kingdom. She is the queen of the kitchen when she's in there. And a good king takes joy and pride, the good kind of pride, <laughs> just delighting in the way that his kingdom is ordered and organized and planned and it's a place of joy for him and all the people who come into it because he takes good care of it. He's the king of his kingdom. And that is a personal responsibility issue to say, this is what I'm responsible for. This is my little kingdom. And so I'm going to do the best I can with that. And the key to a king is that he sees the world as problems to solve. Instead of seeing problems, so the fool sees his life as being problem after problem after problem. People get so entangled in life and it's just a series of problems. And a good king sees each problem as an opportunity for him to do good work. And it's just an attitude choice that's very easy to talk about and very hard to do in actual reality. But... When you go and sit down at a restaurant and have a wonderful dining experience, you are encountering kings and queens. Your server, they've taken personal responsibility for your enjoyment of your dining experience and all their tables, that's their little kingdom. And the guys or gals in the kitchen, they see it as their kingdom. And if you go in and have a wonderful dining experience, then there's a pretty good chance that your wait staff and your kitchen staff are really taking pride and joy like a good king, taking care of a good kingdom, and it yields good results. And it sounds so simple, but it's just an attitude thing. You know, you can say, 
I hate my job or I love my job. And if you hate your job or if you hate some aspect of your life, then are you just going to keep viewing it as a looming problem, like a sword of Damocles that hangs over your life every day? Or are you going to say, okay, it's time to do something about that. I'm going to enlist the help that I need, call upon my best people, and do something about this. You know, that's a powerful statement, calling on wise counsel, because you have an intention of having it be different. Is the right thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. Instead of being the fool, as you talked about in the archetype and seeing everything as a problem, this is where wise counsel, who has the ability to see it as a king or queen, sees it and encourage you to see it as a problem and actually process you through that problem to get to a point where you see it as an opportunity and become a king and queen of your domain. Powerful story. Anything else else you want to add to that, Brian? Nowhere in any piece of literature that I've ever read in my life, the Bible or otherwise, in no story that I've heard, in no movie that I've watched, in no television show that I've gotten into, in in no conversation that I've had with anybody on the planet, have I heard someone say, yeah, life is easy. Life is easy and it's good all the time. Being a king is not easy. And there's a lot of things that can induce anxiety. Everything from internal intrusive thought, internal discomfort, to external discomfort in your environment or the people in your life. We all have to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think certainly as we look at mitigating these anxious feelings that we have, Remembering the story of how we're the king and the queen of our domain can certainly go great distances for us to mitigating that feeling. And I think the other thing is, and tying into what you said, Brian, when we try to meet the expectations that other people have of us, doing what others want us to do, meeting their standards, can stress us out. And what you're saying is, when you're the king and queen of your domain, you're doing what you expect versus what other people expect. And That's right. It's your kingdom. You're the ruler of it. No one else can tell you how to right. run your kingdom. Right. And the other thing, you kings know. and queens don't make excuses and they don't blame. They aren't victims. They take personal responsibility for their domain and they see it as an opportunity to control their world. It's also their opportunity to make life better for others. You know, when you said, the story of the waitress and the waiter who are the king and queen of their domain is making for a pleasant experience for another person in a dining experience. That's a powerful, powerful thing. We can really eliminate a lot of our anxiety, I think, when we focus on our total acceptance of others, affirming the qualities we see in others, and creating good experiences for other people. I think that really is another way for us to mitigate these anxious feelings that we have so many times during our life. I never feel anxious when I'm trying to entertain my children. Yeah. It has yet to happen. Yes. When, when my children and I are having joyful moments together, there's nothing that intrudes or impedes that in the moment. You know, once we're together, it's wonderful and we're having a good time. And then, the, you know, Everything passes, you know, everything in its season. So there are those moments where we're stressed out and sometimes voices get raised and things happen. But the point is, is 
when you channel your energy into the well-being of other people and the joy of other people, it's really almost impossible to suffer anxiety in the moment of creating joy for someone else. You yes. talk about others-centeredness. Others-centeredness is almost the antidote to anxiety. And I'm not yes. talking about meeting their expectations like you, you mentioned before. I'm talking about just, you know, making somebody smile. Another thing Absolutely. that I, that kings Absolutely. have, and this is a whole nother conversation that we're kind of tiptoeing around here, I guess, but a good king or a powerful queen has grit. You remember yes. that grit movement where it was like on the news and we, we talked about it when this news story came up about schools. I don't know where the school was. It was like a, a community in the Midwest decided they were going to teach the subject of grit in the classroom and have that be a theme in the school. And we thought that was so interesting because it's a little bit of an outlier. You talk about anxiety and how anxiety is accommodated and coddled, if you will. Well, that's not rescuing people from opportunities to be tough, whether it's in athletics or in big life decisions. People are still out there and they say, you got to be tough. You got to be tough. You got to have grit. And a king says, you know, I'm going to make a choice. And if it's the wrong choice, I'll know soon enough. And I have to just have faith that I'm going to have the grit and toughness to get through it. So it's an attitude of I'm going to bring joy into other people's lives and I'm going to be tough when things aren't going well. I'm going to be strong. I'm not going to give up. And yeah, I think that those are some of the key ingredients, it would seem, to mitigating all of it. Fear, depression, anxiety, stress. Yeah, I just want to have this conversation with you, Brian, today, because I want people to recognize that we don't have to settle for these anxious feelings that we have around everything that's happened in our life. We have a, a, we have a choice in the matter. Yes, it's not the same thing as anxiety disorder, but these anxious feelings that we have, we can do better by being kings and queens of our domain. So thank you very much for being a guest. It's a great metaphor of awareness that you shared with us today. And your wisdom comes through and is appreciated very much by me and the listener. So thank you very much, Brian. Thank you all for joining Ride the Elephant today, a weekly podcast. And look forward to having you join us again next week. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. Thank you.